Edge. Now, the one who protects us all from prattling prognosticators and perfidious pundits. I say, America, stay out the bushes. Look for the union labels. And to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the government. From my cold, dead hands. I'm concerned that if we don't impeach this president, he will get reelected. It's time for the Alan Nathan Show. Here he is, the longest-running nationally syndicated centrist host in the country, Alan Nathan. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, where we want the Republicans out of our bedrooms, the Democrats out of our wallets, and both out of our First and Second Amendment rights. And they're kind of in the First Amendment today. We're going to try to chase them out of there. But uh, right now they're rooting around in our First Amendment rights because of this whole business of the January 6th videos. The January 6th videos have been released. Tucker Carlson on Fox News had them. He's been playing clips from the January 6th stuff. And the response from the media and the government and the Democratic Party, which are all one and the same essentially at this point, has been outrage, absolute outrage. How dare you show this footage that the American people were not supposed to see? See, this makes this, the narrative complicated. Now you're seeing footage of the Capitol Police showing this ridiculous dude in the in the shaman hat, the guy with the horns on his head, and they're, they're showing him around inside the building that he supposedly broke into. And you little people, you deplorables, you, you empty-headed, bubble-headed voters out there, you're not supposed to see stuff like that, because see, that makes the storyline complicated. Now it's not an armed insurrection that showed up one day as Donald Trump's personal army and attacked the Capitol in a savage assault on democracy itself. Now it gets a little bit more complicated. Well, maybe the uh, government has some role here in making that whole thing happen. Maybe it, some of it was provoked. Maybe there were agents in the crowd, as has long been suspected. There is so much that you begin wondering as you watch this footage you were not supposed to see, and you're not supposed to wonder about things like that. This is supposed to be a cut-and-dry, agreed-upon, regime-approved narrative about a thwarted insurrection, and that's the end of it. You're not supposed to have any other questions. You're not supposed to have any other doubts. My biggest problem with this, I have several, but here's the big one. The biggest problem I have with this is that it's the same damn thing that happens in every other story nowadays, all the way back before the coronavirus pandemic, but let's start there. I mean, let's remember how the coronavirus was handled. You, the little people, you, the average news consumers, you deplorables, you weren't smart enough to handle the truth. You can't handle the truth, like Jack Nicholson yelling in A Few Good Men. You can't handle the information. So your gatekeepers in the media and the government formed a partnership, and they started deciding what you would and would not be allowed to see. There were some ideas that were too complicated for your little heads. You weren't supposed to know this stuff. One of them was about the very origin of COVID-19. Back in the early days of the coronavirus, a lot of scientists very reasonably wondered if this thing came out of the virology laboratory that happened to be sitting at the epicenter of the outbreak. Gee, I wonder if that oil spill has anything to do with the oil tanker that was floating in those waters. I, I wonder. So they started asking questions and very quickly, the government and the media, the Democratic Party, made an alliance and made a decision and said that kind of thinking, that talk about laboratory leak was helpful to Donald Trump because he was saying it and we can't have that. We can't have people walking around and asking the same kind of questions that Donald Trump was asking about the origins of the coronavirus. It would help him too much. And they thought it was some of the science types thought it was more complicated than that. Some of the internationalists wanted to avoid offending China, which they know perfectly well. The Chinese would be very angry if people started investigating the lab leak hypothesis. They were very angry at people who investigated it. They pretty much went to economic war with Australia because Australia wouldn't stop asking where the coronavirus came from. So decisions were made and a narrative was sculpted and you were told that lab leak was unlikely and that all the cool kids thought it was a zoonotic origin, which is the word for a virus that comes from animals to human beings. And you were told to stop asking questions. That was it. That was the narrative you were going to be sold. And here we are a couple of years later and nobody really believes zoonotic origin anymore. I mean, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush. There's some holdouts, but by and large, there, there isn't really a lot of serious enthusiasm for the animal origin. Almost everybody 
everybody now admits that this thing probably came out of that Chinese virus lab. And one of the big reasons they admit that is that they never found the evidence for zoonotic origin. But that's the point. See, you weren't part of this evolving discussion. You, the people, were fed a narrative and carefully edited and trimmed facts that supported that narrative. Another great example, the infamous Hunter Biden laptop. You know, that that was 100% true. We, we now know that was one of the greatest acts of fraud ever perpetrated on the American people. And it ranks right up there with anything North Korea has ever done, China has ever done, in terms of manipulating the truth and manipulating media to sell a party line. That Hunter Biden laptop story was aggressively suppressed because it would have cost Joe Biden the election and we can't have that. And so this, this information was created that told you it was Russian propaganda. That was pure disinformation, pure 100% disinformation. All of the people telling you that that laptop was created by, you know, a couple of gremlins working for Vladimir Putin, and they, they snuck it into this, this computer store so that it would be found. Those people knew that was freaking idiotic. They knew that wasn't true. But they told you a lie deliberately in order to get the story suppressed because it would have hurt Joe Biden. That's the recurring theme over and over and over again. We hear it all the time now. Every time there's a big story out there, you have the media making certain, shall we say, editorial decisions, and those decisions always, always, always align with the political interests of the Democrat Party, without a single solitary exception. Whenever the media decides what you need to know and what you don't need to know, and really that's more what they do nowadays, honestly, big media is much more concerned with making sure you don't know certain things and informing you about things you should know. When it's a story like Joe Biden's absolute freaking disaster on the border, zero coverage. You don't need to know that. We're not going to talk about that. But when it's something that the media is interested in, flood the zone. We, we all know the game now. The real danger with all this is that it leads to the evolution of a permanent party in power. And that is a very, very, very bad thing. All of the horror stories of the 20th century, all of the isms, communism, fascism, all of that stuff, all got started with one party asserting absolute power. And the problem with having a single permanent ruling party is that it starts going beyond the bounds of its legal limits to exert power over the people. It starts doing things things like what you're seeing Democrats do today. They control the media, they control information, they control corporations, they conduct ideological training sessions in corporations. All of this is coercive force. It's force, and so is fraud. When you lie to somebody, when you defraud them, when you sell them a, a lemon of a car, you hoodwink them on a real estate deal or something, you're using force as certainly as if you had robbed them at gunpoint, and the law tends to punish you in much the same way for doing that sort of thing, for committing fraud. Fraud is force because false choices are not free choices. If you lie to people and you manipulate them into choosing something, they didn't choose freely, did they? No, they were forced. And that's what all of this is about, manipulating storylines, suppressing evidence, keeping stories out of the media, serving you up these pre-packaged narratives that you have to believe in. All of these are exercises of force, and it's all going in one direction. Now, of course, people always complain about the, the disinformation from right-wing sites, blah, blah, blah. They don't have a fraction of the influence, all of them put together, that the mainstream media has, and they don't have anything remotely resembling the working relationship with sitting officials, elected officials, and unelected bureaucrats in the government that the left-wing disinformation operation has. So this is all about a party becoming permanent, whether it loses elections or not. The Democrats are always in power. They proved that during the Trump years. They control information. They control what you're allowed to say and do. And they're increasingly exerting control over political assembly. And that's one of the fallouts from the January 6th business. They're trying to target everybody who is an opponent of the Democratic Party as a dangerous subversive. If you disagree with the Democrats and you're organized and you're trying to get other people on your side. Well, the FBI is going to come after you. The, the FBI is busy infiltrating, you know, pro-life Christian father organizations because they decided those people are dangerous. Meanwhile, the left shock troopers, this brown short organization called Antifa, goes out and sets Atlanta on fire. And, and like the FBI doesn't care at all. The media says, eh, no big deal. Just a couple of rambunctious kids tossing Molotov cocktails. There's no FBI infiltration of Antifa. There's no operation to monitor what they're doing. If there is, it's the worst one ever because they can't seem to do anything about this group. And we learned last week that Antifa has connections to the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is this left-wing uh, group that influences the media very heavily. The media constantly turns to them as experts on racism and hatred and so on. And it turns out they're 
they're tied up with these brown shirts and Antifa, and one of the SPLC lawyers is out there throwing firebombs. And it, this is all fine. The FBI, they don't care. The, the Biden administration, they couldn't care less. This is like one of the most obvious domestic terrorist organizations that ever existed. And the response you get is, eh, who cares? But if you're a pro-life group, if you're a Christian, you know, whatever the groups they've decided are on the outs, uh, increasingly, if you support the wrong people for president, especially if you support Donald Trump, if he runs again, well, you're a dangerous subversive that has to be targeted and analyzed and infiltrated and monitored. And you get raided in a big public raid on your house. I mean, this is about a permanent party in power that increasingly feels like it controls speech. The, the Senate Majority Leader, Chuck Schumer, he actually ordered Fox News to stop carrying the January 6th tapes. He told them straight up, stop. I mean, how is that not an assault on the First Amendment, on the freedom of speech? It's, it's egregious. But the permanent party in power increasingly feels strong enough to control those things. And step one is making sure you don't see news they don't like. I'm John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News. Sitting in for Alan today, we'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. This message is provided by Beringer Ingelheim. Idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, or IPF, is one of the more common forms of progressive fibrosing interstitial lung diseases with symptoms including breathlessness during activity, a dry and persistent cough, chest discomfort, fatigue, and weakness. There are more than 200 lung disorders that can lead to pulmonary fibrosis, an irreversible scarring of lungs that can negatively impact lung function, quality of life, and may become life-threatening. While approved treatments for people living with these diseases can help slow disease progression, new therapies are needed to help potentially stop progression. Fortunately, there is new research underway to assess the safety and efficacy of an investigational treatment in patients with IPF and other progressive ILDs. This is part of Beringer Ingelheim's Phase 3 Global Global Fibronir program. To learn more about Fibronir and eligibility requirements, visit fibronir-ipf.longboat.com and fibronir-ild.longboat.com. This is sponsored by IBM. Job seekers, students, and career changers want to pursue roles in science, technology, engineering, and math, but aren't familiar with career options. At the same time, online training and digital credentials are emerging as a recognized pathway to opportunity. Misconceptions about the cost of training and what's required are often roadblocks to success. To tackle this and bring STEM education closer to underrepresented communities, IBM SkillsBuild is announcing 45 new educational partners. IBM SkillsBuild is a free education program focused on underrepresented communities in tech, helping all develop valuable new skills and access to career opportunities. Justina Nixon St. Till, IBM Chief Impact Officer. Technology training can have a transformational effect on a person's life. IBM is committed to raising awareness of the many roles that exist across industries in science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. IBM Skills Build continues to grow with new partners around the world, working together to scale 30 million people by 2030. For more, skillsbuild.org. Dear John, I was hoping it wouldn't come to this, but you've left me no choice. I'm leaving. Uncontrolled high blood pressure is really serious, and lately you seem to really not care. I've been there for you since day one, and I know you think I'm going to keep ticking. But no, my friend, I can quit whenever I want. Why can't we get back to the good times when we were more active and ate more healthy foods and you checked on me every once in a while? Is that too much to ask? I don't want to leave, but unless you stop ignoring me, what else am I supposed to do? Remember, when I quit, you quit. Sincerely, your heart. Listen to your heart and don't let it quit on you. Doing the minimum to control your high blood pressure isn't doing enough. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get your blood pressure to a healthy range before it's too late. For help keeping yours at a healthy range, text PRESSURE to 97779. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. The mission of Paralyzed Veterans of America is clear. Accessibility. Veterans who have served and sacrificed the best of themselves deserve access to the best our country has to offer. Access to meaningful employment. Access to the veterans' benefits they've earned. Accessible homes and vehicles. And access to every part of their communities. With PVA staff working inside VA hospitals, no other veterans organization has provided more real-time Ongoing support for paralyzed veterans and their families. 
PVA is proud to serve veterans across all branches, all generations, and all conflicts. Our nation's heroes fought for your independence. Join PVA in fighting for theirs at pva.org. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor for Breitbart News. You can find my writing at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. Well, President Joe Biden is getting set to introduce his budget. It comes out on Thursday, and he has promised he's going to raise your taxes. And that doesn't really seem like people want to hear that, especially because he already raised your taxes. Joe Biden is taxing the dickens out of you with soaring inflation rates, with material shortages, with just about every aspect of his economy. And now he's going to hit this this economy with tax increases on top of that, which doesn't seem like either a good idea or, frankly, a popular idea. Here with us to talk about the upcoming budget is Kurt Couchman, Senior Fellow in Fiscal Policy at Americans for Prosperity. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show. Hey, John. Thanks for having me back. So so this is what we all need right now, right? Tax increases, explicit direct tax increases on top of Joe Biden's titanic inflation tax. Why does anybody think that's a good idea? Well, because they've spent their entire lives in government and they don't really understand the incentives that are at play in uh, regular people's lives that, uh, you know, have to make sales in order to uh, make their livelihood. So I think that's a lot of it. But, um, you know, the president talks about how he's going to raise taxes. He isn't. He's going to propose that Congress raise taxes. Um, I just want to make sure that listeners know that um, the budget that the president is submitting to Congress is a proposal or a request. It does nothing on its own until Congress acts. And fortunately, you know, we do have divided government right now. So the proposals that he's making aren't going anywhere, but they would be disastrous if they were to be enacted. And usually White House budgets are somewhat fanciful, shall we say, and they they don't make it to Congress in quite the form that they're proposed. But it does tell you a lot about what the administration wants to do, what its priorities are, and how it sees the world. And I think it would be fair to say that if Joe Biden had all of Congress under his belt, then you probably would be getting those tax increases in some form, maybe not the, the ones that he proposes. But it's something people should be concerned about. And it's also part of this just endless death spiral we're caught in, where we have wild profligate spending year after year, deficits go through the roof, and then every now and again, your friendly Democrats come along and say, and now we're going to raise your taxes to pay for all that deficit spending. And that's just never right. going to end. No, and it doesn't I mean, work. I mean, when you when you raise taxes on people, it slows economic growth. And so if you're trying to reduce the debt burden, the debt to GDP ratio, but you're reducing the economy, that makes your debt burden worse as a share of your GDP because your GDP is not growing as fast. Um, so the, the most successful way to uh, reduce deficits is to reduce unnecessary spending. And there's a ton of it. Uh, we just need to get to the place where Congress can get at those things and be able to vote for, you know, uh, reducing spending growth uh, and be able to survive politically and be confident in that. I'm old enough to remember when there was serious talk about growing our way out of debt, out of the deficit. There were people that Mm -hmm. said, and this takes us back to the Bush administration, I think, really, when it was serious, when people said, if we just do certain things to get the economy chugging powerfully enough, then we'll grow so much that if we keep spending under control, we can start paying off these ridiculous deficit bills. And now nobody talks about that. Now it's just like a foregone conclusion that the government's going to take more and more money and the rest of us just have to learn how to live with it. The well, growing the economy remains an important part of uh, of getting uh, the debt under control. We do need to grow faster. We also need to restrain spending. Um, like I said, revenue is kind of a self defeating uh, thing. At some point, one of the things that's being proposed uh, in this budget that's coming out um, is a 32 percent tax increase on a particular surtax. It's called the net. Uh, in, uh, it's the NIT, NIT, um, but a 32% tax increase on investment income um, at a time when we may be going into a recession and when investment is the most volatile thing in the economy. So you're going to take something that's probably going to drop off anyway because of a recession and make it that much worse at the same time that a bunch of the pro-growth provisions of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act are starting to expire. It's just a terrible formula for trying to grow the economy, um, regardless of what you want to do on the fiscal side. But it's just, it's bad economics is what it is. 
One, it sounds like the American private sector, our, our private economy, is hitting the point where you're starving and there's no more fat to lose. So now it's muscle getting eaten up. These tax increases are cutting right into investment muscle, into entrepreneurship, business formation, job creation. They're really going after stuff we can't afford to give up. There's no fat left to skim off the private sector. The fat's all on the government side now. And now they're going after some muscle tissue that we can't afford to lose from this economy. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the we're at a point where the, the government is starting to eat the private sector in a, a serious way. I mean, it always uh, imposes some sort of a burden, but um, the, the level of spending we're talking about and the spending projections, I mean, we're looking at spending continuing to grow and grow and grow and the debt continuing to grow and grow to where like the debt um, by the end of the decade uh, is going to be well above historical uh, norms. And, and some people think that it's going to be twice as large as the economy uh, in just 10 years. So uh, we've got to start cutting the fat in a serious way out of the federal government. Um, but we need to get Congress back in the game. Right now, they're so passive. They're not actually doing a real budget. They've never done a real budget. Um, they only do part of the budget on an annual basis. And uh, until Congress kind of fixes the way that it grapples with these things, then it's going to be really hard for them to do what needs to be done. One of the things that bothers me about this, too, is that we've been getting away with this incredible level of debt and these just outrageous levels of spending for decades because we have certain advantages in the world economy, and those advantages mm -hmm. are going away, and a lot of it is deliberate. We have global competitors like China and Russia that have long ago announced plans to deliberately attack the things that make a special the role of the dollar you know, and the special uh, privileges afforded to American government debt, and some of that's really starting to happen. You're, after the sanctions on Russia over the invasion of Ukraine, you're starting to see some cases of the dollar no longer being the medium of exchange. It's losing its privileged place and being replaced by other financing systems. And that could very suddenly pull the plug on the only thing that's been keeping this engine of debt sputtering along as long as it has. That's right. The U.S. has uh, a rare privilege in being the world's main reserve currency, and that's provided additional room for the debt. But there's a lot of things changing in the world. There's a huge demographic shift from working people to retired people. Um, there's also been a massive improvement in business climates around the world, which is a good thing, except that both of those two things together, the demographics and the better business climates, are likely to drive up interest rates. And um, it's hard to see it right now because we're still kind of rebounding from the pandemic. But I think over the next couple of years, we can expect to see that. Um, one other thing about the president's budget that I think is worth pointing out is that the same day the president is supposed to submit the budget to Congress, he's supposed to submit the national security strategy every single year, which isn't every year anymore. But, um, you know, that's 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 something we need. We need to have kind of the budget proposal and our sense of like how to keep us safe in the world, because that's the number one job of the federal government. Um, but, you know, Congress just lets the president come to the State of the Union and then like whenever the documents show up, um, budget comes every year, national security strategy, not so much. But I don't know, why should Congress let the president come and do the State of the Union before he submits the budget request and the national security strategy? It should be do your homework first, right? Absolutely, and especially in a time of unprecedented peril where we've got aggressive competitors out there that are increasingly belligerent. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party is doing their big legislative session for the year right now, and they had their new foreign minister. We're going to be talking about that on the show today. And he's out there basically throwing punches. Like he's threatening us. He's telling us all these things China's going to do to us if we don't start towing the line and doing what Beijing wants. And that's not just empty bluster when you're looking at an economy as debt riddled, as overextended, as badly managed as the American economy is today. Kurt Couchman, Senior Fellow in Fiscal Policy at Americans for Prosperity, thanks for joining us. I'm John Hayward, your guest host today, sitting in for Alan. We'll be right back with more of The Alan Nathan Show. From NAACP Image Award-nominated author Elise Bryant comes a new rom-com about two teens who overcome misconnections and find their way to love. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling follows two people who seemingly have nothing in common, but after a year of chance encounters, begin to think the universe may be telling them something. Dungeons and Dragons-obsessed Reggie and emotionally bottled-up Delilah meet for the first time on New Year's Eve and again on Valentine's Day, and on random occasions throughout the 
the year. They're drawn to each other, though they are each too insecure to be their true selves. So what happens once they realize they've each fallen for a version of the other that doesn't really exist? Author Elise Bryant. This is a sweet and funny romantic story in which the characters learn to overcome their fears and discover who they truly are. I hope readers enjoy going along on this ride with Reggie and Delilah and maybe learn something about themselves along the way. Reggie and Delilah's Year of Falling is now available wherever books are sold. The new Mayo Clinic diet has been named among the top diets by U.S. News and World Report. Dr. Donald Hensrud, medical director of the Mayo Clinic Healthy Living Program, explains what makes their program so effective. Our new Mayo Clinic diet, built by a team of doctors and medical experts, focuses less on counting calories and more on empowering users with the knowledge and ability to maintain a healthy weight. Members get access to exclusive content and videos from real Mayo Clinic doctors, healthy recipes, tracking tools, and the popular Habit Optimizer that helps users substitute old unhealthy habits with healthier ones, all through a mobile app. Instead of fad diets or crash diets that rarely work for very long, our book and online program and app helps you adopt principles for a healthier way of life, which is really the secret to long-term success. Curious to know how healthy your diet is? The Mayo Clinic has an easy three-minute quiz. Go to mayoclinicdiet.com to find out. Steven. Who said that? Me, down here. <gasps> what are you, a yellow booger? I'm a banana slug, Steven. Well, uh, what are you doing in my room? I'm your sense of adventure. Don't you remember me? Don't you know that we miss you? Miss me? Who misses me? You know, all your friends in the forest. The trees, the pond, that little fort that you made out of branches. We all miss you. Mom took me to the forest last year. I'm a slug, Steven. It took me a long time to get here. Oh, I guess that makes sense. The forest is not that far away. Have an adventure today. I'm sure your mom would take you. You're right. I should get out. I want to have fun. Climb puddles, catch frogs, and climb trees. Hey, Mom! Yeah, hon? <gasps> Stephen! What is that in your hand? It's my sense of adventure, Mom. It's telling me we need to get out of the house and have some fun in nature today. Come to the forest where the more adventurous you lives. Check out discovertheforest.org for cool places nearby. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. You know that feeling? Like every door is closing and you just can't see a way out? Being unemployed, underemployed, or just out of school feels a lot like that. But when you find the right tools, suddenly everything just clicks. Getting on that path may be easier than you think. A good place to start? Go to findsomethingnew.org. At findsomethingnew.org, you have access to resources that help develop new skills. Skills that will position you for careers in today's growing industries. From healthcare and manufacturing to cybersecurity and alternative energy. Plus, you can take advantage of online courses, certification programs, apprenticeships, and more. So you can take yourself from unemployed and uncertain to empowered and prepared for what's next. Find your path to a new career today. Visit findsomethingnew.org. A message from the Ad Council. I was in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean when it happened. There was a sudden jolt and our submarine crashed on the seafloor. We were in total darkness. That's Dr. Dejana Figueroa, a marine biologist and STEM teacher, talking about a deep sea dive she'll never forget. It's funny, when I was a kid, I was afraid of the ocean. And there I was, two miles below the surface. But as a scientist, you prepare for that. Using our training and a little creativity, we fixed the sub and finished our experiments. The dive was just too important. Every dive gives us glimpses at things few people ever get to see. Blowing creatures, fiery undersea volcanoes. When we got back to the surface, I kissed the ground and called my mom, of course. But you know what? I wouldn't trade that dive for anything. Dr. Figueroa uses her passion for STEM to discover new things and make the world a better place. She can STEM, so can you. Check out She Can STEM for more stories and inspiration. A message from the Ad Council. 
Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News. You can find my work at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. Well, I teased in the last segment that China is talking pretty belligerent right now. They're having their big annual legislative session, and it was the debut at that session of their new foreign minister, whose name is Xin Gang. And he gives this really uh, two-fisted press conference where he's threatening the United States with all kinds of consequences if we keep crossing China's red lines. He's just hyper-belligerent about everything. China's fed up to here with us. They're out of patience with us. And if we keep opposing them by shooting down their spy balloons, by making noises about helping Taiwan, then you're not going to like what happens next. It was a very menacing speech. Here with us to pick that speech apart and talk about China's attitude and what it portends for the future is retired Army Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, Senior Fellow for National Defense at the Family Research Council and author of the new book, Kings of the East. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show, sir. Um, Thank you very much, John. My pleasure. So there's a funny passage in this Chinese foreign minister's appearance where somebody asked him about China's wolf warrior diplomacy, and he got all bent out of shape and said, that's just a, a racist, insulting term, and you know, how dare you say that? You're making fun of us, and on and on about how China's diplomats are wise and patient, and we're not wolf warriors. But I remember when that term got started and where it comes from, and that's what the Chinese diplomatic corps were calling themselves. That wasn't you know people like me making fun of them. They They were all thumping their chests and and declaring themselves wolf warriors. And even the new foreign minister then kind of went on to say, you're darn right, we're wolf warriors if you threaten us. You know, why why are they so obsessed with this term? Can you tell the audience what it means and what it means about their mindset? Yeah, it goes back to a 2015 Chinese movie, Wolf Warrior, same name, uh, a patriotic film. And the punchline that comes out of that, John, of course, is, quote, whoever offends China will be eliminated no matter how far away. Uh, a veiled reference to the United States, of course, uh, which are, you know, in their terms and frequently over the last couple of decades, uh, their existential enemy. And, and as you indicate in your intro, the uh, statement by Chinese Foreign Minister uh, Qing Gang uh, were very incendiary. Um, he, yes, initially dismissed the wolf warrior, but he knows um, if we you know, just look at the behavior of some of the Chinese diplomats across the world. They're incredibly aggressive these days, you know, juxtapose that with what they were, you know, just a decade or so ago, which was uh, rather mild-mannered. But, you know, they're following the lead of President Xi Jinping, who, of course, has said that uh, in a speech this Monday, uh, he said, quote, uh, Western countries led by the United States have implemented all around the containment, circlement, and suppression of China, which has brought unprecedented grave challenges to our nation's development, end quote. Uh, so you know, President Xi you know, set the stage for the Chinese foreign minister to you know, basically take some wax at the United States and the West. Um, not surprised. Uh, of course, they're very concerned about our so-called containment, in other words, working with allies like Taiwan and Japan and South Korea and the Philippines, uh, which, uh, of course, feel threatened by what the Chinese communists are doing. You know, they always talk about Taiwan, and of course, that's the big thing on all of our minds. What if they invade Taiwan? But these days, it seems like they're almost a little more touchy about the rest of the South China Sea. They're out there aggressively taking territory away from Vietnam, from the Philippines. They're building military bases. They're harassing fishing boats. They're just being real jerks all over the South China Sea. And that seems like that's what they're really nervous about. We're going to do something. Like, we're going to get together. Uh, Xin Gang d- uh, complained about an Asian NATO, which he said is like, a, you know, we're we're conspiring to build this international Asian alliance that's going to sneak up and stab them in the back in the South China Sea. And he compared that to the way NATO supposedly provoked poor innocent Vladimir Putin into invading Ukraine because they left him no choice by talking about expanding NATO. So that's pretty belligerent talk. If, if you're saying that this is just like U- Ukraine, then naturally the listener says, well, okay, then what are you going to do? Yeah, and then they follow the logical reasoning there is that uh, we're going to equip Taiwan, which they accuse us of already, uh, with the latest weapons that would be used against uh, communist China. Uh, It it is true. We are making inroads with the Philippines. Uh, President Marcos has welcomed the United States back to the Philippines, uh, albeit uh, different than what 
what we were decades ago when I was there at Clark Air Force Base. But uh, we are going to be able to use that, uh, which is, of course, in the middle of the South China Sea. And uh, if you look at a passport that an average communist Chinese carries, it shows the South China Sea as sovereign territory. So uh, they're pretty aggressive in that region, as well as the East China Sea. So, uh, yes, um, they are filling their oats. Uh, they feel as if they've been, uh, I suppose, pushed back against too much, and they're going to show their true colors. And all you have to do is listen to what President Xi's been saying for a number of years, especially at the 20th Congress this past October, when he uh, basically declared that uh, we're going to seek our reunification. In other words, uh, they're going to put China back on the top of the world. Um, they're going to you know, push back with economic might, uh, albeit they have some issues there, uh, but also militarily. And they've shown great progress over the last uh, few decades uh, to the point of being not quite a peer, but almost a peer with the United States. And in some areas, they actually lead. Uh, that's troublesome because we've counted on an enormous quality advantage in the military to where doing anything under our watchful eyes was unthinkable, but clearly it's thinkable for China now. And I've always thought a lot of this belligerent uh, stuff they do when they make diplomatic statements is really not so much directed at us, but for the third world audience that they're courting. It's for the various states they want to bring into their umbrella, and they want those countries to see this speech that Xi Jinping gives or that the foreign minister gives and think to themselves, yeah, China, man, they're they're strong now. They feel like they could take the United States. They're not afraid of them anymore. And that's going to influence how these other countries align themselves with either us and Europe or with China and Russia and this emerging axis of authoritarianism. Absolutely, John. You know, the Belt and Road Initiative, touching at least 140 nations around the world, uh, they feed uh, these nations their own line of interpretation of what's going on in Ukraine, as well as economically, then the INF and other activities that impact these um, sometimes poor nations that then give the Chinese great access to uh, minerals and resources and, of course, uh, political leverage, which, of course, has helped China in all sorts of international fora. So you have that. And as I watch the Chinese uh, really uh, accelerate um, programs like their nuclear weapons program, which caught us, I think, somewhat of unaware uh, this past fall as they've, according to the commander of the strategic command here in the United States, they said they're building these things faster than uh, we can really keep up. Uh, meanwhile, of course, they've aligned themselves with um, the Russian Federation, and uh, they're using the Russians as almost a proxy against the West. And you know, that's an interesting development, but it's, it's becoming pretty self-evident, I think, as we see China emerge as the global hegemon and some of their lackeys, which now, to a certain degree the Russians are, and certainly the Iranians, North Koreans, and a number of other rogue nations are acting in the Chinese interest. So we really have a major, um, if not Cold War, um, something like this uh, foreign minister said, um, we're pushing against um, the goads here. We're going to get ourselves in trouble with China, and it could become something very kinetic, not <clears throat> diplomatic in the future. Tell us a little bit about Kings of the East. What have you covered in that book? Well, in 17 chapters, I go through, you know, first history, you know, how many Americans have really understand the Chinese history, much less how that has influenced their culture. I think that that really helps us understand uh, the likes of President Xi and the, you know, the particular version of communism that has emerged in China today and how the uh, Chinese Communist Party has really wrestled that 1.4 billion person country uh, under its, you know, oppressive thumb. Uh, we go through uh, five parts of what they're doing using national power to create a new world order. They don't like the world order they currently have because it's pro-democracy, pro-West, uh, and so they want to replace that, and we've seen that based upon statements from President Xi and Vladimir Putin and others. And so they use all these five powers, um, technological, security, economic, and so forth, um, 
to promote their particular agenda. And then, of course, I, I outline uh, what we in the West, first we need to wake up, but then we need to take very deliberate steps. And unfortunately, uh, I haven't seen a lot of that action by the current administration. Uh, they are beginning to wake up to perhaps the fentanyl problem, perhaps you know, the spy problem we are suffering, perhaps uh, the pushback on national security and technology. That's an important point. China often says that it's proving that only authoritarian governments really work, but that isn't true. What is true is that governments need to be disciplined and forthright in pursuing our national interests, and we're not. You know, we undermine ourselves, we shoot ourselves in the foot all the time, we, we get confused, we make deals that don't last, and that's how they're killing us around the world. They're offering themselves as a more logical alternative. Former Army Lieutenant Colonel Robert McGinnis, Senior Fellow for National Defense at the Family Research Council, thanks for joining us. I'm John Hayward sitting in for Alan today. We'll be right back with more of the Alan Nathan Show. In December, LastPass, a popular app for managing passwords, suffered a security breach, potentially exposing millions of people's personal information. When a business created to protect passwords gets hacked, it's a reminder how vulnerable our sensitive information can be when stored in the cloud. And for businesses who need to protect data, security is a top concern. To help prevent security risks, the open directory platform provider JumpCloud recently introduced a password manager, JumpCloud's Antoine Jabara. Businesses cannot always rely on an offline solution as users need to share and access passwords across multiple devices. And cloud-based options aren't ideal either. JumpCloud Password Manager takes a hybrid approach, storing data on users' devices and seamlessly syncs user vaults to multiple devices in an end-to-end -end encrypted way. This addresses some of the limitations of cloud-based systems and bridges the gap between convenience and security. To learn more, visit jumpcloud.com. Vitamin B12 is important for supporting not only our metabolism, but also our energy levels. Our brain and our nerves need certain vitamins like B12 in order to function properly. Even if you're eating all the healthy foods like fruits and vegetables and getting you know great sources of protein, it's sometimes the case that you can become deficient in one or more nutrient, and that's where supplements can be helpful. So if you wanna support your B12 levels, Jaro's Methyl B12 is a great supplement to consider to optimize your B12 levels. This type of B12 is recognized by the body, so it's delivered to your cells more efficiently. It's also been shown that it is a great way to make sure that you're getting a highly absorbed form of vitamin B12 and one that's gonna be retained better than other types of B12. You can learn more at jaro.com. If you came across someone struggling with hunger, how would you recognize them? By their clothes? Their age? The way they speak? Would you notice a 16-year-old boy who, who got, got his first, first job, not for extra spending money, but to help feed his little sisters? Or a mother who's in between jobs and sometimes goes to bed hungry so her kids can have dinner? Or a 14-year-old girl who signs up to every after-school activity not to make friends, but just to get something to eat? Or a retiree who fell ill and had to choose between getting medicine or groceries. I am the one in eight Americans who struggle with hunger. People you pass by every day but never knew were hungry. I am hunger in America. Hunger can be hard to recognize. Learn why at IamHungerInAmerica.org. Brought to you by Feeding America, 200 Food Bank Strong, and the Ad Council. My name is Judy Teeter, and I'm the mother of three boys. My youngest, Joe, was a great kid. He loved sports, music, and his youth group. One day, Joe asked me to drive him to an after-school event, which was about a mile from our home. I was driving through a green light when a car in cross-traffic ran a red light and drove right into the side of our car, killing Joe. The driver was talking on her phone, so she never even saw the red light. She was so absorbed in her phone call. Before the crash, I didn't realize just talking on a cell phone while driving was so dangerous. Now it's something I think about every day. According to the National Safety Council, about one in four car crashes involves a cell phone. Hands-free is no safer. When you're behind the wheel, put away your phone. For Joe and for the thousands of needless deaths every year. 
Remember, there is no safe way to talk on a cell phone while driving. Find out more at nsc.org slash callskill. I'm Ben Affleck, and I want to thank you for joining me and supporting Paralyzed Veterans of America. Our vets need you. I'm a quadriplegic. I'm definitely at risk with my diminished lung capacity. I have MS. I'm in a wheelchair, and I can't leave the house because I have a compromised immune system. I'm very concerned about would there be a bed for me? Would there be a ventilator for me? Would I be able to survive something? It's, it's just heavy. You know, it's, it's a heavy... It's a heavy moment. This is a war. This really is. Our veterans fought for us. Let's fight for that. I am so grateful for the PVA. They're making sure that we have all of the food and supplies that we need right now. We all got to help each other right now. We can't get through this by ourselves. It's with profound gratitude that you're going to be saving our lives. To find out how you can help, please go to helppva.org. That's H-E-L-P-P-V-A dot org. Welcome back to the Alan Nathan Show. I'm your guest host, John Hayward, Deputy National Security Editor of Breitbart News, sitting in for Alan today. You can find my writing at Breitbart.com, and you can find me on Twitter at DOC underscore zero. But one of the biggest stories that you're probably not hearing a whole lot about in national media these days is the Antifa attack on Atlanta. Antifa, which is a domestic terrorist organization that the Democratic Party spends a lot of time telling us doesn't exist, is this big organized conspiracy. And they brought in a bunch of out-of-state muscle, and they worked up an attack on on this police training facility that is locally known as Cop City. It's violent, there's been vandalisms, there's been injuries, and there's been deaths. And as far as the media is concerned, none of it's an insurrection, none of it matters all that much. It's being treated as a, a mostly peaceful protest, really, is, is the framing we're getting. But that is very far from the truth of what's happening there. Here joining us to talk about it is Dr. Curry Myers, criminologist, university professor, and retired sheriff with over 35 years in law enforcement. Welcome to the Alan Nathan Show. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, this this is a scandal to me in the way that this cop city thing is being covered. This this is an insurrection, you know, in, in any meaningful way. But the same media that just won't let January 6th go is acting like it's a couple of exuberant hooligans and, you know, maybe somebody threw a couple of rocks. But it's, it's not. This is a dangerous uh, terrorist assault. You're absolutely right, and the and the other issue is this hasn't this isn't the first uh, time this has occurred at this law enforcement training center. Um, this this has now been an ongoing struggle for law enforcement in Georgia and the citizens in that area to deal with for the last couple months. So this isn't something that just automatically happened overnight. This continues to be an escalating issue. It wasn't that long ago where a state trooper was shot and wounded. Um, by an Antifa member. The law enforcement returned fire and killed that person. Um, but this is a perfect example where this is, um, has already escalated out of control and it needs to uh, be reined in immediately. Why, why is Antifa attacking this facility? Why does it loom so large in their thinking? Well, it doesn't make any sense. Um, if Most common people, if we're talking about um, police reform, uh, it has to do with opportunity. I prefer to call it opportunities for improvement in our profession as, a, as a opposed to police reform. Uh, but some of those opportunities for improvement are, are increased training and better training. Well, this is a this is a state-of-the-art training center that's being built. It has not been completed yet. It's still in its um, um, design and, and build mode, mode out. Law enforcement is on site to protect kind of as a for force protection issue because of the the issues that have happened before. But this is a perfect example where law enforcement in the community has decided that they're going to fund law enforcement in the training center to make better officers on the street, which is exactly one of the improvements that could be done in policing. And yet they're still against it. And uh, to me, this has nothing to do with police reform at all. This is really about the postmodern, I call it postmodern Marxism that's occurring that's designed to fatigue the criminal justice system and ultimately abolish police or try to abolish police or at least minimize it significantly. 
Now, lately, we've heard a lot of stories about how the FBI is going after this or that domestic organization they think is dangerous or potentially dangerous. And when they do that, they infiltrate them, they put in operatives, they maintain surveillance on them. But that doesn't happen with Antifa. As far as the FBI is concerned, they're they're ninjas. They're this amorphous, uh, cloudy organization that they can't seem to get a hold on. The Biden administration occasionally says they don't even exist, that Antifa is just an idea that some people have. It's not a real organization. And then you get this cop city attack, which is clearly a coordinated terrorist strike. There were personnel brought in from around the country to make this happen. And in every way, this is a classic textbook domestic terrorism operation. And still, the administration does not want to admit that Antifa even exists, never mind treat them as terrorists. And this has been an ongoing event across the country, not just specifically in Atlanta, but as you know, Antifa has been behind many of the riots that have occurred starting out since uh, 2020 and had some impact even prior to that. They used George, George Floyd as a model to um, to get into the system and, and at a time when law enforcement was being attacked, and in many cases rightfully so for some of those actions, but they found that as a weakness and began to exploit uh, many folks who had sympathy for police reform at that time, and that's when they took advantage of it. But these same folks in the same organization have burned um, federal buildings, co- federal courthouses. Um, they attacked um, police uh, police facilities uh, in Seattle and Portland. Uh, and they they burned Minneapolis. They they are all over the United States, and especially in more progressive cities that are not going after these folks and and arresting them for crimes that are being committed. And so this kind of goes back to not only should the FBI, this, this, this Antifa must be listed as a terrorist organization. I'm quite befuddled that they're not based on their past circumstances and the things that they've done. And the U.S. attorney for Georgia should file um, RICO charges, um, which is racketeering charges against it because they've used racketeering to stage these things, not only um, – um, the groups, but the the delivery of weapons, the delivery of materials, the use of manpower, um, and they should in, and have ATF investigate the use of bombs and explosive of these weapons. That's kind of the start. And then the U.S. Marshals could be deployed to manhunt for those that are current um, federal fugitives, and I'm sure there's quite a few on that list that already are. And then after the RICO charges are filed, go after the rest of them for, with arrest warrants. Um, and then the Georgia governor... Um, it should have the Georgia Bureau of Investigation take the lead in this full investigation of all these events, put to get, put them together, not only in a conspiracy investigation, but any other specific state charges that occurred that would also assist in the filing of the federal charges. And I think last but not least, it's time to call out the Georgia troopers and the Georgia National Guard to secure these areas um, around this law enforcement training center disperse and arrest any violators that are not willing to disperse. So it might be a time for martial law in this particular area um, that is done by the governor. But we have to we've got to get out of this kind of woke mindset that that um, we're on pins and needles. And that's part of the problem. We need to get back to law and order in this country. There are opportunities for improvement in law enforcement. This but this is not the way. You would think the people who are passionately committed to police reforms or critics of the police would be worried that these antics are going to reflect badly on them. They wouldn't want to be affiliated with these violent characters. They would be out there saying, this isn't us, this isn't the way. But they really don't seem to mind. Like They, they really aren't responding to this with any kind of condemnation or opprobrium or distancing. They don't seem to care at all what this makes their movement look like. I think that's true in many ways. We are actually seeing some pushback now, or if you look at Washington, D.C. and the crime bill that was occurred there, that's becoming problematic and progressives are starting to run away from that. But ultimately, the coyote is the strong person right now, or the strong animal right now, and the sheepdog is weak, and we need to reverse that and make sheepdogs strong again. Dr. Curry Myers, criminologist, university professor, and retired sheriff with 35 years in law enforcement. Thank you very much for joining us. I'm your guest host, John Hayward, sitting in for Alan today. Thanks a lot for joining us on this hour of The Alan Nathan Show.
The opinions you hear on the Main Street Radio Network are those of the host, callers, and guests, and not necessarily those of the station, Main Street Radio Network, its management, or advertisers. The information on the Main Street Radio Network does not constitute a recommendation, offer, or solicitation to buy or sell any product or securities. So please, consult a professional before investing. If you have any questions or comments about Main Street Radio Network, contact us at 703-719-0433 or at our website, MainStreetRadioNetwork.com.